Welcome to the Radical Departures podcast, your source for startup storytelling. We're your hosts, Abby and Chris. You'll hear informative discussions full of valuable expertise and actionable insight on the issues you face when launching and growing your startup. This is Episode 7 of the Radical Departures podcast. Our guest today is Edouard Alligon, founder of QuasarDB, a fresh new take on B2B database software. In this episode, Edouard discusses why and how he decided to create QuasarDB, some of the challenges of working across continents, and how he leveraged assistance from Business France and Impact USA to build out QuasarDB and enter the U.S. market. While he's a serious and hardworking guy, Edouard also has a refreshing approach to building his company and knows how not to take things too seriously, a necessary skill when in business for yourself. So without further ado, here's Episode 7 with Edouard Alligon. Hi, today we're here with Edouard, the founder and CEO of QuasarDB. Edouard, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, good morning. My name is Edouard Alligon. I'm the founder and CEO of QuasarDB. QuasarDB is a solution to analyze and miracle data in real time, and we work mainly with investment bank, hedge funds, and stock exchanges. Now, Edward, obviously you're French. Yes. <laughs> Why, obviously. You start QuasarDB here in France. Yes. Uh, how did you, I know you have a technical background. How did you get started? Where did you come from, and how did you make the transition from what you were doing before to, hey, I'm going to create a database? So actually, I hate databases. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's uh, so just so you know, there is some sort of I'm currently having a, some sort of punishment from life, <laughs> uh, and that's precisely because I hate database databases that I wanted to create my own. Actually, I was working on the, in 2008. I did a change in my career, and I wanted to work in market finance. It's not that I wanted to work in market finance, but basically I had opportunity to move there. Right. And as you know, 2008 was a bit rough. <laughs> a little bumpy. Yeah, I've heard it's, it's a little bumpy. The, a couple of things have happened. And uh, so stocks kind of moved a lot. <laughs> and uh, that was actually both a stressful time in my life, but also very, very uh, rewarding in terms of what I learned. As we were working, uh, was working with the traders, the clients, and everyone, and we were just trying to get the ship floating right. We saw that the system, they could not keep up. And because I, it's not that I hate database, but I, I don't have any special background in databases. My background is mathematics and uh, system programming. That is creating the low-level components that make your computer run. My naive approach was to say, well, I think uh, we spend too much time uh, transferring the data from one system to the other, and systems are not integrated enough, meaning that we have some sort of loss on the wire, right? right? And I started working on doing my free time on a prototype of, well, let's say just for the sake of uh, the experiment, what would happen if I integrate everything in one layer? And I did a couple of benchmarks, and that kept me going because it was really onto something. And uh, so at some point I went to, uh, because I was working, I was freelancing at the time, I went to one of my customers and I said, well, I think I have something you should try. It will solve one of the problems you have. I will not get into everything uh, investment banks do with the uh, numbers, but basically there's a series of problems. And one of them is uh, at some point you want to run computations on thousands of CPUs. 
And of course, a CPU to run a computation it needs data, right? So how do you send the data to thousands of CPU as fast as possible? And that's the first problem we solved. Right. And that's the first customer I made, and that's how QuasiDB was. Born. Oh, cool. Yeah. You did it the old-fashioned way that, to me, makes the most sense, is you had a customer with an actual problem, yes. and you fixed an actual problem, rather than solving a problem that maybe exists. Yeah. You know, we don't know. So that's cool. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. yeah, thank you. From there, we raised a bit of money in France, less than a million, I think, uh, 750,000. And then we realized that with this money, we used it to uh, build the product further. And we added features. And uh, well, what the database is now is pretty different from where we started, and it can do much more. And uh, especially, it's very good at ingesting everything that happens on the market, store that forever, and enable you to analyze uh, the data in real time. And the motto we have is we say we enable our customers to uh, analyze an unlimited amount of data in real time. And uh, what's cool is that you can store as much data as you want, and you, we have the capability to do that in real time, regardless. So it's a very technical product, and it has applications outside of market finance as well, as we are discovering right now. I think a lot of the startups you see here and elsewhere, they're trying to be sort of uh, consumer-oriented products. I've always thought that focusing on back office business, it's not as sexy, but it's a really fantastic place to be. Yes. I mean, it's a very, uh, you have a captive audience. They're always, these organizations are always looking for solutions. They have money, which is important. <laughs> they have money to spend. I, you know, call me old fashioned. I kind of like the idea of generating revenue. Yeah, yeah. So, I do like that too. Yeah, it's a crazy idea. Yeah, it's, it's a crazy idea. Yeah, it's a bit revolutionary. Yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, I spent just three months in Silicon Valley and uh, they like revolutionary ideas. And this was maybe too soon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when you were getting started, were you looking at, uh, did you initially try prospecting here in France? I mean, your first customer the initial previous version was, I'm assuming, here in France? Yes, uh, it's a very large uh, French bank. So we try to sell to French people, but uh, that's not a very good idea, actually. It's uh, B2C in France works well, but B2B is difficult. First of all, France is not a big market. It's the best size of the market. Right. I know in Israel, uh, they have a very small market, so they have to get out. Right. In France, you can have the illusion that you have a market, but actually the country is not that big. And uh, companies don't like to acquire technology. They like to build it. Right. So we're a country of engineers. Maybe right. not like Germans, but French people like to build technology. Yes. So the problem is uh, very often you're going to have interesting conversation with French customers, but they're just going to say, well, I can do it myself. Right. Very right. often. It's... I had that experience. Yeah. I was with one startup and it was uh, a very well-known household name here in France. And they kept trialing the product, trialing the product. And then after six months of being very demanding, they disappeared. Hey, what happened? Six months later at Microsoft uh, Dev Days, there they are on the stage. They recreated the product, or at least 20% of it. They could have bought my product for, I don't know, $100,000. Yeah. And they probably spent 300000 creating a miniature version of it, which then they had to maintain. So it was... I think uh, that was one of the times where I said, okay, maybe I'm not going to really spend much time here. No, you're 100% uh, right. Yeah, I, actually, to be honest, we have a couple of French customers. 
But in the process of selling to French people, you have to realize very quickly if the person is actually going to buy your product. Right. And this is a cultural thing that I can decode as a native French. But for Americans, it's very hard to understand because Americans are very pragmatic and say, well, if it costs me 200,000 to build and 100,000 to buy, I'm going to buy. Right. But the French is going to say, no, I'm going to do it myself because <laughs> it's a question of pride. And uh, so basically our customers are in New York City, Chicago, Boston, and right. London, and a little bit of Paris. I'm going to relocate to New York City, and uh, the company has a lot of potential to grow here. Right. There, I mean. And uh, we're still going to uh, have our French customers that want to buy a technology like QuasiTV. Right. And we can speak to the other as well if they want. We are realistic in, in terms of... It's good to be closer to your customers. It's good to be able to, if you're living in New York and that's where a lot of your customers are, and that's obviously where there's a lot of money in this sector, it's good to be able to just hop on the train and go to see somebody. Because yeah. I think especially my experience, and, and I'd like to hear yours, is, is when you're, especially at a young phase of a company, you want to go face-to-face. -face. People won't always tell you things on the phone if you're doing, if you have that distance, but when you sit down, you go to the office, you spend even a half a day or a day, people start talking, yeah, you know, maybe I could do this, maybe I need this, and, and I think you get a lot of valuable information that way. You're absolutely right. What I've I felt when I was in the U.S. is the American customers, especially the one in New York City, are a little bit chauvinistic, which I can understand because I was born in Paris and I'm also chauvinistic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they said, Great, just tell us when you're based in New York City. Right. And we'll do business. And there are one valid reason for that is they need to feel that there's a company near them and they need to feel there is going to be technical support, not somewhere in France. Six hours apart, yeah. five hours apart, six yeah. hours apart. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it's a lot. It is. And I think if you're dealing with live data, that's also a huge concern. When there's a problem, and there's always problems, no matter how good anything is, there's always a problem. It's just the nature of the business. People want to say, they want to reach out yeah, and yeah. touch you, yeah, say, exactly. okay, you're right there. Yeah, exactly. It's a comfort. It's yeah. a comfort. And I understand that. And you need to spend a lot of time with the customers to understand exactly how they think and uh, how they do. And there is a, such a big ecosystem in New York City. You go to events, you see them. It's more random, it's more natural because they say, hey, by the way, I could not, I forgot to call you, but, uh, you know, we had a discussion and uh, I think we should talk again, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And it's a very small world. And uh, the good thing is, uh, because I've worked in market finance, I understand exactly what my customers do with the product. Right. And I can talk with the business as well understand the value they bring out of the product, which is good for me, maybe not for them sometimes. <laughs> but no, actually, which is great is I understand exactly what they do with it. From the sound of things, your previous experience, you were a technical consultant. Yeah. Because you sound like uh, somebody that's maybe just a pure engineer is less receptive to this is what the customer wants. But it sounds like you do a lot of talking with the customer as to what are their needs? What are their requirements? And it's, it's customer focused. I agree, but to be honest, yes, I'm a software engineer. Right. But I think a software engineer that doesn't care about the customer, the users, is missing the point. Because uh, writing software for the sake of writing software is very useless. It has to be useful at some point. Of course, some software engineers are very deep into, uh, and they talk to the customers, other software engineers, which is fine. 
which I've done at the beginning of my career. But although the software itself is uh, infrastructure, it's the database. So the users are going to be technical users, mm -hmm. like quant or even traders, which are, today are traders are most software engineers. But what you're saying uh, is what we look for when we hire someone is uh, we are not interested in the kind of software engineer who is not going to care about what the software is going to be used for and the final, I would say, the goal of the software. And uh, just writing the beautiful software, which is perfect, and, uh, and, and, and it's perfect because I have no users. <laughs> right, right, right. And, uh, you know, focus on dogmatic issues like, oh, you should do it this way because I read a book about it. And they say, yeah, you know what? It's great. The best software is the one everyone uses. I have a slight bias towards Microsoft. I have a love-hate with Microsoft, but, you know, Microsoft, I thought, generally did a good job of having a decent enough product that got out there. And some companies, it, you know, you wait too long. And if you wait too long to have the perfect product, well, there goes your market. It, it'll go right by you because when people have a fire, they need water. They need a fire hose to put it out. They don't need to wait for the perfect fire hose. They need a fire hose. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I agree. The difference is uh, because uh, we are responsible of uh, critical information. We need to focus on quality a lot because that's actually the first uh, concern of a customer is going to say, well, I'm basically going to hand over my business to you, which is not entirely true, but uh, this Germanic emphasis is from the customer to say, well, right. and uh, that's why we spend so much time on quality and making sure the software is right. But we try to be very pragmatic about how we solve problems. How did you make the transition from being a software engineer to being so receptive to what the customer needs. Did you have a earlier in your career, did you have a specific uh, customer that, I don't know, you had a, some kind of a, an issue with uh, where they had a problem? And like, because again, I think a lot of times, and you're right, probably when people are younger, you sort of live in this bubble and you're less receptive, but that was there something, a, a specific project you were working on or was it just something that evolved over time? No, actually, uh... I love computers and I, since I was a child and I learned programming, etc. But uh, very quickly for me, it was important to that what I do is full in the sense in the real world. So just using computers for the sake of computers and just writing software for the yeah. sake of writing software very quickly is a bit for me a little bit vain. Right. And uh, actually, I have a very scientific background, but for me, it's like science for the sake of sciences. It has to be useful at some point. And so I think it's more personally trait than anything. It's not really something happened to me. Right, right, <laughs> right, and, right. And I became a different person. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I was always like that. And how did you transition? Because you're customer facing all the time. How did you do the transition from, again, having a product to also having, since you're talking with the customers, there's a very strong sales element to it. And I think... Uh, Something that I've often seen is that there's a strong temptation when it's your baby. You want to tell everybody about how beautiful it is and you show everybody all the things. And while there's a time and a place for it, it can often be really treacherous yes. when you're talking to a customer. Because I was, I was telling someone the other day, I said, you know, yeah, this person, they're going on and on about uh, the product because they were one of the developers of the product. They're talking all about it. And then someone says, oh, it does uh, whatever. Well, I'm going to have to involve Bob because Bob's working on that side of the product. And suddenly Bob comes in and is like, oh, well, I have a different idea and I'm talking to this other vendor and they just killed the project. It's a very delicate balance to know what to say, how much to say. You say enough, but not too much. 
Yeah, it's true. Uh, so I'm not a very good sales, but the CEO has to be a salesman anyway. We have someone in the team who is, who is a better salesman than me, but uh, as a CEO, I learned on the spot. Right. And uh, especially at the beginning, I was uh, very, very passionate about the product. But if with a customer, you spend more time talking about customer, then your meeting is a failure. So just let the customer explain. Mm -hmm. I think that is really spot on. That's so refreshing. Is, well, yeah, because I used to tell engineers, shut up, just shut up. Listen. Let the customer yeah. talk and yeah. let the customer say, this is what my problem is. Yeah, exactly. And uh, sometimes also, I think the key to a great sale is to come to a meeting and say, I want to make sure that the person needs me. And with the really, and it's very refreshing for a customer if you say, I'm thinking actually with you to see if we are a good solution for you. This is easier to do when you have some commercial success. Right. At the beginning, you're struggling, so you need to make sales. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so <laughs> it's very easy with a full stomach to say, well, maybe I'm going to eat this cake or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, at the beginning, it's much harder. And with the experience, um, now, if I talk to a customer, I'm very open-minded and say, did you have a look at this competitive product? Did you try it? And what do you think? And uh, is this kind of solution right for you? And also because now we have good references. I can see exactly the kind of a problem where we are very strong and where we should uh, definitely uh, try. You cannot convince the customer, but you can maybe push him where yeah. you want him to go. And most of the key is to listen. If the customer is not willing to share with you a real problem, then you probably have nothing to sell. It. And I think that's something that takes a while to learn also yeah. is knowing when to spend time and when to say, I'm out of here. There's, this is not going to be a useful experience for anyone. So moving yeah. on. To give you an example, I was talking today, it was on Wednesday, I think, with uh, someone in a large telco. And I was very open with him. And I say, I know we have some use cases in your kit, but we know nothing about what you do. And currently, we already have a lot of work with our current customer, hedge funds, and etc. But that's the start of receding the relationship. And in six months, we can talk over and, and see how it goes. That's how you should approach prospects, always with the, well, it's a seduction phase a little right. bit mm -hmm. as well. And no one wants to <laughs> to work with someone who's, oh, please buy my product. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> it's a bad look. It's a yeah. bad look for everyone. Yeah. And uh, that's how it works. But uh, yeah, you, you still, nevertheless, there's competition out there and uh, you have to fight and you have to make sure that price is right, the value is right, and uh, customers don't always make uh, rational decisions. And uh, yeah, that's it. That's something that is a horrible lesson to learn, which is customers don't buy technology. They don't buy products. You have to have a relationship. Customers do not act rationally. No, they don't. And uh, that's why the sales team we have, they are very good at uh, getting close to the customer and really understanding and reassuring them. We're still a small company. We are sometimes responsible for millions of euros or dollars or pounds of uh, revenue for right. the customers. They have to feel there is a real team. Right. Mm. And uh, part of the process is uh, generally they see that we have solid technical skills and that the company actually exists for a while now. This is the non-rational part of the deal. And uh, earlier we spoke about uh, French people and they are not early adopters, most of them. Whereas when I go to New York City and it's really refreshing because they say, okay, I never heard of you, but I see an opportunity to do something better than my competitor. So I'm interested. In the US, you're the person that's doing sales for you. Are they French or are they, no, uh, they American? Are American. How do you find as a French person 
when you go over to London, when you go over to the U.S.? Culturally, how do you find that? Are people accepting? Do they care that you're a foreigner? Do they not care? Because to me, I sort of think, especially in IT, there's tons of, I've worked for companies where the founders are foreigners and, uh, you know, I'm a foreigner here, so I sort of get it. And I think places like London and the U.S., they don't really care so much. It's true, and uh, the Americans are very accepting of uh, foreigners because actually every American has been a yeah. foreigner at some point. I think, nevertheless, uh, we are currently in the process of hiring our US VP sales. Right. And uh, although it's not legal to say that, uh, but the person has to have an uh, American accent. When you speak to customers, because we know it's going to be, I mean, American, he has to be American in the sense that it's going to be culturally American. Actually, French people and also Russian people have a good reputation on Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've worked with uh, yeah. a lot of Russians and had great experiences. So it's not really a handicap, but for the moment at the state of the company, which is still a French company, it's harder to recruit American people. They're going to be, American people are going to be a little bit, uh, they have, uh, we have to structure the company to offer a package and, uh, you know, the 401k and the right. things, uh, right. uh, which is for us is, uh, there's a learning curve. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, Abby, you were wondering about how Edward was expanding the company, like how finding prospects outside, you know. Yeah, and I'm also curious, how did you make your international connections originally? Yeah. You know, getting started working in the U.S. can be quite difficult as a French person, I would imagine. In my previous life, uh, I was actually uh, in the U.S. many times. Okay. And I made connections as well in, uh, in Wall Street and that kind of things. But uh, recently, I was in an accelerator program from a business firm called Impact. Okay. And that helped me bootstrap. And they uh, told us about everything which is important uh, when you come to the U.S. How do you hire people? What you can do? What you cannot do? The legal things in terms of visa. What do I have to do? Uh, what I can I say? And they told us interesting things about make sure that you make company American. Uh, not legally speaking, but in terms of culturally speaking, you have to adapt. For me, it's not a problem because I've always been working in different backgrounds uh, and not a lot of French companies. Then things funny like be on time, uh, <laughs> uh, which for me is fine because I lived in Germany, so it's like just two notches below the Germans, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, you, you're funny. it's funny because actually this is an important point. And I spoke to a couple of uh, friends or prospect or customer or whatever, and they say, yeah, we, what do we don't like about the French people? You're late <laughs> very often. <laughs> it's true. Uh, a simple thing. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah, I used to feel that I was late until I came to France. Yeah. Yeah. I feel right like, I'm on time. This yeah. is great. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So the accelerator was really useful. Yeah, it's useful if it's your first company, which is the case for me. And if you don't have the business background, although I have one of my associates who was the former managing director of Dell France and Nike Europe, so he has a very oh, yeah. good uh, connections. Okay. But despite that, if you are the CEO, you cannot go around learning a lot of stuff about how it works. What does it mean to raise money? How does it work? How the law works? You have to understand a minimum. You can't uh, delegate that. It's very important to know it. And how did you choose that particular accelerator? We have the visit from uh, Stefan Alis, which is uh, responsible for creating this program. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were convinced that it was a good program for then. We did very small amount of background checking. 
Also, it's from Business France, which is an official government entity. So you know that it's a good program in right. the sense that there's going to be no problem, right? And uh, so you have the support of the French embassy, that kind of things. Mm-hmm. Now I can say it's a very good program. They have uh, seven companies in San Francisco and seven in New York every year. Something of that, the number may vary. So for next year, I would encourage uh, people uh, who are... And it's for only for companies that actually look forward to go to the US. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not just vacation, right? Yeah, let's go a few months to, uh, to New York City, great. Yeah. And it's also expensive in terms of time and you have to move yourself there and it's going to incur a lot of costs and right. you have to make sure that your company can do it and there's a reason for you to do it. Mm-hmm. Not every company has a future in the US because uh, it's a different market, right. Right. different logic, and maybe your business model that works in Europe doesn't work over there. What do they, do they take a percentage of the company or what's the... Uh... Uh, no, they, you just pay a fee. Okay. And uh, that's all. And you, there's no equity involved, which okay. is great. Yeah, that's right. nice because it's right. a short-term commitment. You're yeah. not beholden yeah. to yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. and uh, because all the good programs you have in the US, the most famous one being Y Combinator, mm-hmm. they actually take a significant part of your equity. So if you do it at the beginning of the company, it's fine. But if you do it at a later stage, that's a bit expensive. Do you have plans you're going to raise more money? To... Yes, yes, we are. Unfortunately, I cannot say, uh, but uh, it's yeah, sure. probably going to be at least transatlantic with uh, right. one French fund and maybe one American fund and oh, maybe cool. 100% American. We absolutely need, uh, this is actually a good transition because when you are hiring uh, local people and you say, we have an American VC in the company, this is really great, especially if it's a famous one. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And uh, what roles are you still looking to fill? Uh, in the US, yeah. uh, uh, so in France, we are looking for software engineers, if okay. you're interested. Go to a website. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, in the US, it's going to be, uh, I think the most significant hire we're going to do is the VP sales. Okay. And uh, this is difficult hire because it, uh, it has to be good at technique. Mm-hmm. It's a very technical product, right? Mm-hmm. right? But it has to have connection in Wall Street. Right. Yeah. And so, <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's hard right. to find. Yeah. Very hard to find. Right. And you want to keep the tech stuff, the tech development stuff here, though, in France? Yes, I okay. don't think there is any reason why I would want that to move to uh, either New York or San Francisco. Mm-hmm. We're going to have some technical team over there, right? But, but I more think support rather than development? Not really support, but it's more in terms of uh, how many in uh, headcounts. Maybe we're going to have 80-90% of the research and development in France and a little bit in the U.S. because it's great to have antenna there. Mm-hmm. And also, I intend on uh, flying people regularly from one side of the Atlantic and say, would we like to spend three weeks in New York City close to the customer? Which is good. I think really good. Yeah. And uh, also, there's a career path uh, for people joining the company saying, well, if at some point in your career you want to live and work in the U.S., we can do that. There's a visa for that. You've been an employee of the company for a while and you can spend one time in your life in New York City. I think it's uh, especially to young engineers, it's a great offer. And I think it is good to have people going back and forth. I'd say it's a mistake when people look at, uh, oh, it, it's expensive to move people around. But I think from a cohesion perspective, it makes a lot of sense to have people and also having people that are building the product have exposure to people that are actually using it. Because I think it can be, it's a really good learning experience. It's good to see, you know, it's, it comes back to this It's all great. You know, theory is great. But when you talk to someone, I think that they'll often pick up some really interesting ideas. That's cool. 
I agree 100%. I know the people from the successful French startup called Algolia and uh, they spend a day, the CEO and the CTO and the CFO all told me that they basically fly around from San Francisco to Paris, anyone who wants. Hmm. And like, if you want to go spend two weeks, just go. And they've organized a company like that. And uh, I think, yeah, it's pretty smart. It's harder to do actually from San Francisco to Paris. So maybe we're not going to work exactly with that, but I'm a huge believer of being physically present right. where it happens. And that's also why we have the company in Paris. Because, yeah, you could do in a smaller city in France and it's going to be less expensive and et cetera. But I don't think in terms of costs, I think in terms of benefits. And I think being in a hub uh, where the electricity is, where things happen, is very important. And just spending maybe two weeks in New York City to see, well, just go to one hedge fund one time, see right. how the guys are, what they think. Just uh, maybe visit one large big firm like JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs just to see what it actually is. And so you understand and you, it's going to impact the way you think. Do you think there's any specific characteristic or characteristics of French companies that's really unique or special in the world? You're talking about a uh, math background. I don't think there's many places in the world that have as much strength as the French do in math. It's a really math-oriented country. But do you see any other specific qualities that make it good for uh, building a business? Yeah, actually, yeah. It's true that maybe I would think about Russia for math. And, of course, the, America is also very strong in math. But in France, it's a cultural thing, right. logic, mathematics. That's very good when it comes to software. And actually, uh, John Chambers from Cisco is a huge believer of France because of that. I think he's right. But we're not so good at business. So I think the American-French combination is very excellent. Like if you take basically the king of marketing and sales and you combine that with uh, very good engineers, then we can build something awesome. French people are very good at building stuff about uh, critical thinking, which is sometimes very annoying. (laughs) But uh, we are very good at this. And so that would make us unique in that respect. Israel also is interesting in the model. They also work a little bit like that. But we work with a couple of Israel companies. One famous one is uh, Melanax, for example. There are similarities, but I think the uniqueness of French is, yes, like you said, and critical thinking. And the fact which is the big, thing we're not very good at is process, following a process. And uh, we have a lot of to learn from uh, Americans and Germans for that. But on the other hand, there are some areas where not being able to follow a process, be creative and not really follow orders is also a good thing. So you have to always, uh, it's like you have to channel this and make sure that the engineering team is actually somehow converging towards something. But uh, use that creativity and imagination to uh, question the status quo and say yeah. something different is what we've done with QuasiDB because basically we took a very established market. There was also a lot of startups from uh, the Valley that raised a lot of money. And we nevertheless went there and say, yeah, we're going nevertheless to go there because we think they are all wrong, right. which is typical French, right? There's a lot of good things about having competitors. I've been in markets where I've had competitors and I've been in markets where there are none. And when there are no competitors, it means it's not really a defined market. Nobody really knows to even think about it. It's a problem that people, it may be a problem, but it's too early. I started my career competing against IBM Hmm. and we used to beat them up and down the street 
even though IBM would give away their product and we charged a lot of money for it, but IBM was, it was great. I loved seeing IBM because you could just beat them to death. They were terrible at marketing. Their products are usually not very good. And it was great. I don't mind having competitors. It shows that there's a market. And once there's a market like that, companies say, oh, there's a, this is an area because maybe the CTO was going to conferences and they say, you know, headline, whatever big market area. People have defined it as a market. There's budget for the market. There's an understanding from the top down. You need to find a solution for this market. When there's no top down, this is what it's a harder sell. It's a lot harder to sell. I could not agree more. I mean, yeah, sure, this, it's great. The thing is, you have to not have too many of them. If it's a pack of dogs, uh, just yeah. talking for a small amount of meat, uh, then it's maybe not a good idea to, to get into the market. You know, it's uh, the red ocean, blue ocean uh, analogy. Is uh, As a company, you need to somehow create a market. Give, uh, just make sure that you are unique in a way. If yeah. you're not unique as a small company, why would anyone go to you? Right. Like, uh, we know that we, uh, in a, as a company, it's going to be difficult to sell if there's not really a, one of, a, of a, the uniqueness of the product in the play. But sometimes it works, but you know, it's based on luck because they like you or because they want to work with a small company or they don't like the competitor, which happens sometimes. Right. We've used them, doesn't work, we, enough. But so, yeah, if you go in a market where there is no competition, it means only two things. You are blind and you, <laughs> there is actually a competition and you just don't understand your market or you're not in the market because uh, it doesn't happen. You are the first one. It's very rare, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, you have to be humble. No, no, you, you don't have a genius idea and you're not the first one. Right? I guess I'm just curious, what do you think <clears throat> about the startup? seen here and how it's developing it's sort of exploded recently yes it's true there are a lot of startups mm. it's very far from what exists in uh, silicon valley and new york city and i think we should not try to mimic that mm -hmm. uh, we're a different country different culture it's going to be different there's a lot of companies in france i think it's going in the right direction mm. we see a lot of b2c it's a shame uh, because um, they're not so many. I think we are almost one of the only software infrastructure company uh, right. doing what we do, wow. which is a shame uh, because uh, that's a huge market. That's, I think, because of the, the VC environment in France is not very mature mm -hmm. compared to the US. I've seen that very obviously. So right. that's going to change positively. There's a couple of good VCs in France. Right. We need more of them because they've got actually a lot of money in France. Uh, they really need to be invested. But the feedback I had from VC is, yes, we don't have so many good deals in the flow, which is, I think, what every VC would say. <laughs> and professionally, the interaction I had with Americans is, uh, you can see that it's more professional. They have a process, uh, it's uh, more transparent. But yeah, the startup scene in France is maybe exploding, I don't know, but it's growing mm -hmm. for sure. And I think we're going to see a couple of great companies coming up in the next years. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I have the bias because I worked in, you know, sort of back office technology for years, and I think it's a great place to be. If you have a good solution, there's always a lot of money available there. It's uh, very hard though, because what is very hard is going, you're going to spend a lot of time not making a single dime. Right. And it's very hard for most investors to understand. If you're not an investor that understands that kind of model, then you can be very surprised to say, why are you not making money? It's actually, it's part of the process. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's going to, I think, uh, like I said, French people are not early adopters. So when a couple of successful companies are going to appear 
to that. Everyone's, see, yeah. Oh, so <laughs> that's how you make money with startups. Okay, so maybe I should stop investing in Facebook for cats. Yeah, well, it's true. There's, It's not as flashy because, yeah. uh, you know, I always work for these companies and people are like, oh, you were in, you know, doing this. What's the name of the company? And I'm like, believe me, you've never heard of it. It's unless you are one of those geeks working three floors underground in an <laughs> IT center, you've never heard of it. Don't you know? But they're very profitable. It's a great place to be. Yeah, but it's very difficult. Uh, it's very hard. Well, every company is very difficult. The thing is, the feedback loop of uh, that kind of company is very long. Right. Because uh, whereas when you do B2C or maybe B2B, but in more uh, like uh, small deals, it's easier to see, okay, this is not the right thing. So we're going to iterate and change. Here for iteration cycle, it's much longer. Maybe think about your sales cycle. What do you have? Maybe a three to six month sales cycle to... Yeah, it can go up to two years sometimes. Yeah. Especially we have one very large customer within aeronautics. Right. So it's just a different world. Right. Uh, but it's such a great business that it's worth it. What I can say is actually we're going to do a software as a service version of the product to have shorter cycles and to be able to talk to uh, people who cannot afford uh, six-figure checks for the software. Yeah. So it would be, uh, yeah, people would... In the cloud. Yeah, in the cloud. Yeah. So, right. Yeah, so we take care of everything. Just give a credit card. Right. And your budget is 500 euros per month. Right. Fine. We give you for 500 months per month of software. Now, what is the implementation? Once, you, let's say, you have somebody that's buying a perpetual license, you go. I'm assuming one of your team members will set things up, or is it a kind of a plug-and-play product? Uh, actually, the product is very, very easy to uh, install. And uh, if uh, we have community edition, uh, people can download on the website and takes uh, like my uh, the sales and the team says it. I'm a sales guy. It took me ten minutes to install All on right. my laptop. Mm. Right. Uh, so that's fine. That's always the best when you can have a salesperson that can install it. Yeah. That means it's idiot proof. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should edit that. <laughs> uh, no. Hey, I come from the sales world. It's okay. I'm insulting myself. It's all right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's uh, the software is very easy to install. Then the customer is generally taking care of writing the adaptation. That's pretty quick. Uh, what's long is uh, doing the test, load test, the kind of things. And then there is a ramp up. So the customer start with a small amount of RAM, like one terabyte of RAM for mm -hmm. processing, and then they go up. And so we have a pricing model when they start to write us small checks and they pay us as they use. The setup itself, then we talk to the IP and we pay to IT and we provide them with support. But it's very important for us that the customer becomes proprietary of how the software works, or they have full understanding of it. So we do provide training, we do provide support, but we don't do the installation ourselves. Uh, we maybe send one consultant from time to time, uh, pre-sales engineers, but it's very important for the growth of the company that we don't do too much work, and we're very happy to work with partners right. to do the final mark. It's easy to get bogged down in that, yeah. and it can become a very expensive project. Whereas when you have partners, you know they can make some money out of it, but they have the bandwidth because that's what they do. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a temptation, I think, for a lot of companies. Do you want to be a software company? Do you want to be a services company? Yeah. And doing both 
Yeah, is, yeah, I think it's hard to avoid that. Uh, you know, there's that temptation, but it can really swallow the company. That's, that's so true. And uh, for the first customer, we do exceptions, especially for biggest customers. We can grow the extra mile if needed. But the model, especially when I'm going to back in New York City, is going to find partners. So are you interested in making money with us? Right. We, you are structured as a service company. So you have people and it's your job to make them work for customers. That's the thing. Uh, next things I have to do. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Well, Edward, thank you very much uh, you very for much. joining us today. We really appreciate it. It sounds like you guys are on the right track. I There's a lot of cool things happening. And enjoy your next. Uh, when do you leave for New York next? I don't know yet. Soon enough. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, good travels. We'll see you okay. soon. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. Thank you. That wraps up another episode of the Radical Departures podcast. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and join us next time on Radical Departures.